Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. While I was gone, they uh, took away my CD recorder, which really confused me this morning, but we'll work it all out. <laughs> there we go. It is good to be back. I last taught in this room 462 days ago. There was actually another lesson before they shut things down, but I was in Colorado and Stuart taught um, I will not hold it against Stuart for shutting down the whole church. <laughs> Although I might add that I did have the opportunity one time to teach at a uh, young person's camp one week in the summer because my daughter was working there. And I was the last speaker of the year, and that was 10 years ago, and they haven't reopened. <laughs> Just saying. I have recorded 46 lessons from my home. Sitting in my bedroom, I've told you before how weird that was uh, at the beginning, and it was weird at the end. So, of the 18 people in this picture, nine of them, that's my family, nine of them had COVID. They all got better. Everybody's doing great. We've added two more grandsons to the family since that picture was taken, and one 20-year-old girl. So, go figure. Uh, while we were quarantined, we had uh, family night. This is my family scattered around the world playing a game. You have a list of categories, and you have to find a word that starts with a C for each of those categories. So that's what we did. So things have been different. Things have been different for the last year and a half, uh, and it is very good to be back. I hope we can remember how to do all of this stuff. Uh, the scripture is still there. The scripture is still important, and that's what we're going to talk about. Teresa and I had a discussion yesterday trying to reminisce about what the last year was like. I know that there are um, lots of people who aren't here who have passed away in the last uh, year for a variety of different reasons, and we'll miss them, but uh, they're in a better place. So, picking up in Philippians chapter 4. This will be the last lesson on Philippians, and then we're going to move to the book of Mark. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I've never taught the book of Mark. Uh, I know that I've done Matthew, because that's my favorite book in the Bible, and I know I've done Luke and John, so we'll fill it in. Hi there. <laughs> These are our friends. They just moved up from Austin. Be nice to them, please. So they'll come back. Last week's lesson, and we did meet in person last week over in the Oak Room, we discussed six commands that God gave us through Paul at the beginning of this uh, chapter 4. He told us to stand firm. Wherever it is that God has placed you, that is where you were supposed to be. He told us to agree in the Lord. Remember, the two women were fighting over something. We're not told what they were fighting over. But he says they are all believers and we need to stand together and we need to agree in the Lord. And then the next three I had a lot of trouble with. 
It tells us to rejoice always. Whatever situation you're in, rejoice. And I have to admit, sometimes it's been hard to rejoice in the last year. Sometimes it's been hard to rejoice at different points in my life where I faced different circumstances, good or bad. And then the let our reasonableness be shown, be anxious for nothing. That one I just fall flat on. I don't know about you, but I just have difficulty with that at times. There, are, there is something in my life all the time that I can be anxious about if I allow myself to do it. And finally, we were given a list of things that we were supposed to think about. Whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is commendable, these are the things that we are supposed to talk about. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's any virtue, think about these things. We are, in fact, supposed to think about certain things and, by definition, not think about other things. I was reading a blog this week who actually he had a, a short essay about this verse, and he flipped it on its top. I mean, he flipped it over. I mean, what would it look like if we thought about things that were not true, not honorable, not just, not pure, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer is that's what we do a lot of the time. So that brings us to today's lesson, starting in verse 9, if you would. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the, peace of, and the God of peace will be with you. This is actually the conclusion of last week's lesson, but I ran out of time. We had this list of six commands, and there are other commands in the book itself, and there's other commands in the scripture. And he gets to the end of that, and he says, all this that I've taught you, all that I have taught you, that you have seen in me, you are supposed to put it into practice. Remember the verse in James that's up there. Don't be just somebody who hears the word, but be a person who puts it into practice. Because if you don't put it into practice, then you are deceiving yourself because you don't really believe it. I mean, let's face it. You and I hear a lot of things. We hear sermons, we hear lessons, we hear this, we hear that, and some of it just kind of goes in there and sits in there and has no actual effect on our daily life. And Paul is telling them, that's not why I'm telling you all of this stuff. I'm telling you all this stuff so that tomorrow, today, next week, you can go put this into practice. You can go do these things. Now, it's interesting what he says. What you have learned, received, heard, and seen in my life. Put that into practice. Now, we had this discussion earlier in the book of Philippians where he talked about be an imitator of me, which sounds rather, well, to be quite honest, arrogant. You know, I don't want you to imitate me. I want you to imitate Jesus. It just sounds so much better, right? But Paul is confident that he is doing what God has told him to do, that he is teaching the truth that God has given him to present 
that he is able to say, you've seen my life, put that into practice. You've heard my words, put that into practice. Whatever you have received from me, and that word received is actually a little interesting because it carries the idea that I have received something and I pass it on to something, someone else. And that's what he has done. He has received the gospel from Jesus Christ and he's telling them, this is what you need to put into practice. So the conclusion of last week's lesson, the conclusion of the whole book don't be someone who just hears the Word of God, but rather put, in it, put it into practice in your daily life. So, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had, you had no opportunity not that I am speaking in of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, let's remind ourselves from the very beginning of this book, Paul has received an offering from the church at Philippi. It was delivered to him, and the whole letter, amongst all the doctrine that he's been teaching, the whole letter is really sent back to tell them how he's doing and to thank them for the gift. Now remember, at the time, if you are in prison, I mean, this was the way it was in most of the world. In fact, a lot of the world today, this is the way it is. If you're in prison, they're not going to feed you. They're not going to provide you with anything. That's up to other people to provide that for you. So if you're going to eat, it's because somebody has brought you food or somebody has brought you money with which you can purchase food. It's not the prison's job to feed you. They're not taking care of you. You're a prisoner. So Paul, being in prison, needs someone to take care of him. And the church at Philippi, hearing about his situation, sent an offering to him. They sent, uh, I think it was Epaphroditus, with the offering. And Paul is thanking them, and he says, I received your offering. I received everything that you sent. I know, this is Paul talking to the church, that over the years you have wanted to help me. In fact, he mentions that when he just began his ministry, they were one of the few churches that did help him. He's telling them, I have received everything you sent me. Thank you. But don't think that I was in need. But wait a minute. He was in need. He needed provisions. And then he gives us one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. I have learned to be content. What does it mean to be content? Huh? At peace. At peace? That's very good. Satisfied? I've got a definition here that I stole from a book. 
Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal of every condition. That's quite a handful. The guy wrote a book to explain that definition. You can read it. There's the title of it right there. If I throw you in a prison and I don't feed you, you by definition, this is pretty simple, you by definition aren't eating. But that hardly means that you're content. In fact, if you were like me, you would be complaining to anybody that would listen, right? If I'm not receiving what I think I ought to be receiving, what I ought to deserve, what I should be experiencing, then I'm going to let somebody know that I'm not happy with the situation. But what am I really saying when I do that? Well, I'm saying that some person didn't provide my needs, but what I'm really saying is, God, you didn't provide what I am owed. I have a right to, and I have my list. I have a right to all the things on this list. Three meals a day plus snacks, a nice soft bed, an air conditioner, comfort. I have a right to all this, and if you don't give it to me, God, there's something wrong with you. Back to the definition. Sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's God's wise and fatherly disposal of every condition. Contentment means that I am satisfied where God has put me at this point in time. I always liked a definition that Ted gave one time in a sermon. Contentment means that what I have right now plus Christ is all I need. And here's the question, do I really believe that? Or do I just want a little bit more? Let me let you in on a secret that you're well aware of. Everything, not everything, most everything in our society today is driving you to be not content. Every shred of advertising is an attempt to convince you you can't possibly be happy if you do not have my food processor. You can't possibly be happy if you haven't taken this vacation. In the last year, during the COVID season, I have uh, subscribed to the Wall Street Journal. Okay, a good newspaper. Uh, every Friday, they have a section on real estate. And you can get a clue by the title of the section, Mansion. Here we have 10 pages of homes that I will never, ever 
ever own. Now, what does reading that do to my brain? Does it make me content? No. That'd be a nice house. That would be a nice, it's just amazing what they have, right? In yesterday's Wall Street Journal, they had an article about a new Rolls-Royce car. It only cost $13 million. But you see, that doesn't really bother me, by the way. Why? Because I don't like cars. But if you have more books than I have, we may have some trouble here. We all have something in which we are discontent. And what we're telling God is, God, you are not taking care of me the way that you ought to take care of me. That is the root of our problem. And it isn't just money. It isn't just material things. It is the situation that we are living our lives in at a particular point in time. It's the friends we have. It's the influence we have. It's the power we have. It's the characteristics that we have. I'm not going to ask you how much of your life you spent around thinking, hoping that you were smarter, better looking, more influential, more this, more that than somebody else. Paul is saying, I have learned to be content. What's the first thing we learn from that sentence? It's not just snap the fingers and you are content. He had to learn to be content. How do you learn to be content? Well, I can tell you, because we were just talking about it, how you learn to be discontent. Okay? You watch all the advertising that is presented to you continually. Studies have very clearly shown that Facebook produces people who are not content. Why? Well, I, and I'm making this up because the last time I was on Facebook was five years ago, but I look on Facebook and somebody took a good vacation. They had a good meal. I didn't take that vacation. I didn't have that meal. I don't. And on Facebook, we are presented with this image of people at their best, at their happiness. And guess what? I begin to envy that. And particularly among young people who spend a whole lot of time on social media, it produces discontent. But if that's the way to learn discontentment, how did Paul learn contentment? Well, that's harder. It's harder. What he learned was that God loves him, that God has a plan for him, and that God is going to provide everything that he needs to accomplish everything that God wants him to accomplish. As long as I have my focus 
on the world around me and what I don't have, I will never learn to be content. But when I take my eyes off the world around me and look at the graciousness of God, I can begin to learn to be content. Now it is interesting, last week's lesson we had six very definite commands. Be anxious for nothing, stand firm, be reasonable, et cetera, et cetera. They were very obvious commands. This verse is not really a command. He's not commanding you to be content. But remember the verse we just went through. What you have heard from me and what you have seen do these things. He is telling us, not as a command, but as a, an example to us, how we are to live lives of contentment. I have learned to be content. Do we, do we need to remind ourselves that he's in prison? We've mentioned this every lesson. Do we need to remind ourselves that he is chained to Roman guards? Do we need to remind ourselves that he has been beaten? Do we need to remind ourselves that he has been stoned, shipwrecked, whipped? Do we need to remind ourselves that through all of that, God was teaching Paul to rely on God and not the world around him? And you know what Paul says? That's a pretty good deal. And that's the part we have trouble with. Because you see, I want to be a good Christian, but I also want some stuff. How much stuff? Oh, just more. I remember years ago, a friend of mine and I had a discussion, you know, about the American dream. And he was trying to quantify the American dream. You need this much money to have the American dream. And I said, no, the American dream is more. Whatever it is, it's more. We today, as a society, are wealthy enough that every one of us could live the American dream of 1950. Size of house, number of cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't want that. You want more. And guess what? There is no end to more. There's just always more. Let's read the rest of this passage. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Look at these contrasts that he is presenting to us. I have learned how to abound. I've learned to have plenty of stuff. I've learned to be well-fed, and I've learned to be content in that. Let me ask you a question. Is it easier to be content on $50,000 a year or $50 million a year? Do me tell you the answer? It doesn't matter. Wait, of course it matters. It would be much easier to be content on 50 million a year. I would be content. No, you wouldn't. Not at all. 
Why? Because you'd run into somebody who had 60 million a year and it would drive you nuts. I have learned when I have everything that I need, when I am put low, I have learned to be content in both these situations. And I might add, that's our problem today. We do live in a very affluent society. We do. And guess what? That society wants us to be discontent. The contentment does not come from some certain economic level. The contentment comes from trusting God. And that's what Paul has learned. It is interesting, there's a uh, couple of verses in Proverbs chapter 30 that I've always thought very interesting. And the uh, writer says, you know, God, I ask you two things. Don't let me be rich and don't let me be poor. Because if I'm rich, I may think I don't need you. And if I'm poor, I may steal and defy your name. What does this teach us? That there's problems when you're rich and there's problems when you're poor. Paul has learned. He has learned to be content wherever he is. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and the secret of facing hunger. Now, you may think that those are different secrets. I, I'm willing to struggle with the secret of having plenty. I'm not so willing to face the secret of being hungry. But Paul has learned to do it. Now, how did he do that? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's the verse you need to memorize from today's lesson. Why, why can Paul be content? Because he knows that he can do anything because God has given him the strength to do it. Now, let's think about this for just a moment. You know, my strange brain starts working on these verses, and I start thinking, he can't do anything, okay? Paul can't sit there and fly around, you know, the prison cell. Paul can't sit there and just think a billion dollars into existence. He can't lift 10,000 pounds. There are lots of things that he can't do then what does it say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? What does it mean? It means that he has the ability, the resources to do everything that God has asked him to do. But what if you want to do something else? Well, God's not going to take care of that. God's not interested in fulfilling that. Paul is saying, I can do everything that God has placed in front of me to do, and I don't want to do anything else. 
That's the part that gets us in trouble. That's the part that drives us nuts. Because I want to do a lot of things that God may not want me to do. And guess what? God's not going to give me the strength to do those things. God is going to give me every bit of resource I need to fulfill God's plan for my life. I can do all things, all things that I want to do because I want to do what God wants me to do, and God will provide the resources to accomplish what He wants us to do in our life. Do we really believe that? Do we? I mean, I would love to think, you know, I would be a much better teacher if I were a smarter person or a better-looking person or a younger person or something. If I didn't, if I, 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 and it goes on and on. But you know what? God has given us everything that we need in order to accomplish what he wants us to accomplish. Therefore, we can be content in the place that God has put us. How do you know when you're not content. Remember that list of commands from last week's lesson? When you're anxious, it demonstrates that you're not content. When you are refusing to rejoice always, it is demonstrating that you are not content. If you are not willing to stand fast in the place that God has put you, it demonstrates that you are not being content. When you start grasping for things and refusing to be reasonable slash gentle, it demonstrates that you are not content. What do we need to do? We, like Paul, need to learn, learn to be content. Once again, how do we learn? By relying on God to give us the strength to do whatever He wants us to do. You do know, right, that sometimes learning is not the most pleasant thing in the world, okay? Particularly life's lessons. You've heard the old joke, right? The uh, seeker climbs the mountain to meet the guru, and he asked the guru, what's the secret of a happy life? And the guru says, good decisions. Well, how do you learn to make good decisions? Bad decisions. <laughs> the bad decisions hurt. But that's how we learn to make the wise decisions. Paul has learned because he is relying on God. And that's the instructions that he gives to us. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, what is the source of Paul's power? 
God. What is the source of his ability to do what Paul has done? God. Nowhere in here does he say, I'm a really hot dude. I'm really doing great things. Back up a couple of verses. Remember our comment about whatever you've seen from me, seen in me, what you've heard from me, put this into practice. Remember the verse earlier in the book, imitate me. And we thought, I thought, that's pretty arrogant of him. But Paul knows where his strength comes from. Paul is not telling them to draw their strength from Paul. Paul is telling them to draw their strength from God because that's where he got it from. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can. Now, I don't know about you, but there are lots of times I know that God wants me to do certain things, and you know what? I just don't think I can do it. I just don't think that I can muster the courage, the energy, whatever it is to do that. Am I being humble by acknowledging that? Or am I refusing to accept the fact that it is God who strengthens me? Go back to the Old Testament prophets. God comes to one of them, and we'll just miscellaneously, you know, pick a random one. And he says, I want you. And he goes, well, not me. I can't do anything. And God says, I'll take care of it. You just stand there and do what I want you to do. Okay, I'll do that. And that's what he has called us to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We now get to the conclusion of the book. I made this comment, you remember that in uh, chapter 2, he starts to end the book. And then he begins chapter 3 by saying, well, I've got one more thing to say, when in reality he has half the book to go. But now he really is ending the book. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves knew that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. They have been sponsoring Paul for a long time. Now, just out of curiosity, we as a church and some we as individuals sponsor missionaries to do a lot of things. And you know what? That's a really good thing. You ought to do that. We as a church ought to do that. And we do. How would you like to be sponsoring Paul? And, you know, here we are 2,000 years later, and we know the impact that Paul is having, that Paul has had on the world, 
And we go, that would have been really cool. But think about this. We don't know any of that. Paul is this upstart Jew who has who persecuted the Christians, then decided randomly to become a Christian. And everywhere he goes, he gets into fights, and they beat him up. They stone him. They run him out of town. Yet, you know what? I see some potential in this guy. I'm going to support him. We know what Paul ended up doing. We know that Paul ended up writing half the books in the New Testament. We know that. The church at Philippi is just trusting God. Paul started the church at Philippi. Paul started, shared the gospel with them. He gave them the truth, and they responded to it. Good answer. And then he leaves. That's Paul's way of operating, and he goes to start another church. And they know Paul needs money, but you know what? He keeps getting himself locked up. But you know what? That's okay. He gave to us. We're going to give to him. Why am I saying this? Because you see, sometimes you support some missionary, and you think, you know what? They don't seem to be doing very well. You know, they're, they're, what are they really accomplishing? Let me tell you the answer. You have no idea. That's the answer. You know, it is interesting, Elizabeth Elliot, you remember Elizabeth Elliot, her husband Jim Elliot was a missionary with a couple of the guys who were all killed by a tribe in South America. And Elizabeth Elliot uh, later went to that tribe and shared the gospel with them. The tribe that had killed her husband. And she had an interesting observation. She said, you know, people are always asking me, how many people did the death of her husband lead to Christ? Like there was some calculation, his death, but five people became Christians, so it's okay, or 500 people, so it's even better. She said, why do we even worry about this? God knows what's going on. There's no calculation involved here. The church at Philippi is supporting Paul because of their love for him and because he is sharing the gospel like he did in Philippi. And the fact that he keeps getting locked up, well, so what? All that means is he needs the money more. But what does Paul tell them? It's not the gift. It is the fact that you get to share in the fruit that comes from my ministry. That's what he's telling them. You get to share in the fruit. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then he describes the gift. And here are the words that he gives. A fragrant offering, 
a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What is he talking about here? Go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the sacrificial system. The aroma of the perfume that they, the incense that they burned in the tabernacle, in the temple. The sacrifices that were presented. And Paul is telling them, we're not slaughtering animals anymore. But you are sacrificing. You are providing a fragrant offer, offering a sweet smell because of your giving. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I, Paul, am very grateful you sent the money. But the reality is I have learned to be content. If I've got nice mutton to eat for dinner, that's great. If I have stale bread to eat for dinner, doesn't matter. I'll eat whatever's put before me. Why can I do this? Because I have learned to be content. I have learned to be content. I have, over the years, recognized that God is going to provide whatever I need to accomplish the task that he has given me. Therefore, I can tell you, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it. Why? Because I know that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. Here is the church at Philippi. I dare say they're not the richest people in town. Okay? Let's just assume that. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago what I uh, had read in some commentary, that if Philippi is a typical Roman community... Probably 90% of the community are slaves. And if the church is a cross-section of the community, a good percentage of the people are slaves. They're not rich. They're not those people that are going, yeah, I've got a spare $10,000. Here, take it. They're giving out of love, out of their limited resources. And Paul turns to them and says, just like I have learned to be content, you need to learn that God will supply everything that you need. And there's that word again. Need to accomplish the work that God wants you to do. Now, our discontentment says, I need more. I would be such a better teacher if I had a better fill-in-the-blank. No, you have everything that you need. And you know what? You're not that well off and you're giving gifts to me. To use a really strange picture, God is sitting up there on a mountain of cash. He has more riches than you can ever, ever imagine. And he's giving you Everything that you need to accomplish his purpose, he will supply your needs. Maybe not your wants, maybe not your 
unbiblical desires, but he will give you everything that you need. That is the promise that we have in Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now that's interesting, just to throw that in. I mean, Paul is telling them, I've got guys, I've got gals in Caesar's household. Okay? What is he telling them? The gospel is effective. The gospel is spreading to places that you would not imagine. We've had this story before. I just love it so much, so I keep repeating it. The Praetorian Guard, the elite bodyguards of the emperor, are chained to Paul. Poor guys. They don't stand a chance. It's like being chained to Billy Graham for four hours a day. A good pagan would never have a chance. And that's what Paul is telling them. You are sharing in my ministry. And let me give you a hint. We've got people all over who are accepting Jesus Christ. They all greet you in the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He ends where he began, which was with the grace of God. You see, in the midst of all of this discussion, in the midst of last week's lesson, where he gives us the six commands that we're supposed to follow, you think, oh no, oh no, here's just another list of things that I have to do to be right with God. And the answer is no. What do you do to be right with God? Nothing. Salvation is grace from the beginning, grace in the middle, and grace to the end. And Paul knows that. But he also knows that you need to learn certain things. He learned how to be content. How did he learn to be content? By standing fast where God placed him. By rejoicing by everything, about everything that God gave him. Not that it was comfortable, not that it was easy, but he knew everything that he had came from God and he rejoiced always. And we, no, forget you, I live in this affluent society and I can't rejoice if I don't get what I want right now. Not tomorrow, right now. And Paul sitting here in a prison cell, rejoicing. And we know this. Go read the book of Acts. They get arrested. They get beaten up. They get thrown into jail. What are they doing? They're singing hymns. That's pretty amazing. Why? Because he had learned. He had learned to trust in God. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to be faithful where God has placed us. Unlike some of the other books that Paul wrote, there's really no beating the reader in this. You know, you read uh, 
First and Second Corinthians, he's got lots of trouble that he has to deal with. Except for the, you know, the one little disconnect between the two ladies, for the most part, he's happy with the church at Philippi. They're doing what God wants them to do. But he, Paul, wants to encourage them to keep on. Because like you, like me, sometimes we just get tired. And we go, okay, somebody else go take care of it. But guess what? We're supposed to stand fast where God has put us. We are supposed to rejoice always. We are supposed to be gentle and reasonable to those around us. We are to not be anxious. And there are certain things that we are supposed to think about continually. And having done all of that, we are to take that and put it into practice in our daily life. And when we put that into practice in our daily lives, we will learn to be content. Because we know that our God, who is sitting there on this mound of riches that we can't begin to describe, is directing our lives to bring glory to Him. And guess what? Glory to us. Do we really believe that the life that God is directing us down is for our good. Do we really believe that a loving God is directing us? If we don't, then we'll look at the next commercial and we'll think, yeah, all I need is that food processor and I'll be happy. Guess what? There's no food processor in the world that is ever going to give your life fulfillment. It's not going to be a new car. It's not going to be a new house. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with new cars and new houses. Nothing. And there's certainly nothing wrong with food processors. But if you believe that those things will bring you happiness and contentment, you're wrong. What will bring you happiness and contentment is the grace of God. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided for our needs. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.